This episode of The Chat brought to you by The Call, the latest CD from Australian singing and songwriting sensation Danielle D'Andrea. Hello, you're listening to The Chat with Claire Fordham. I'm Claire Fordham and your name is? I'm Tiago. And I'm your producer and engineer and partner in crime. Yes, you. Mo- oh, that's <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> that was mo- that's the a most Freudian unfortunate <laughs> turn of phrase. Why is that? Well, we're talking about a true crime. We're very grateful that you've taken the time to download this and listen to me interviewing interesting and inspiring people. This is the chat with exonerated murderer Bruce Lisker, who was charged and served 27 years for murdering his mother and was finally exonerated after a big um, investigation by the LA Times and lots of people rooting for him and and trying to get him out. It's a riveting tale. Also involved in this interview is Bruce's wife, Cara Noble Lisker, who started writing to him in prison. She is not some crazy, what was she thinking, writing to someone who's serving time in prison for murder. In case you've ever wondered, who does that? What sort of a woman does that? Cara did it and she ended up finding the love of her life. I think people will learn an awful lot from this. We talk about marriage, we talk about crime, we talk about the criminal justice system. He's an extraordinary man and he is, just hear the story of how it happened, how he came to be arrested for his mother's murder, how he endured spending 27 years in prison, how he got out, how he's living his life now. Do yourselves a favour, put the kettle on, put your feet up, the chat with Claire Fordham, with exonerated murderer Bruce Lisker and his wife Carl Noble Lister. This is a twofer. This is two-parter because it's that good. Put the kettle on, Tiago. You simply must applaud them. The Chat Podcast with Claire Borden. Keep and chat on. So as I say, I'm all... Oh, Bruce yep. is leaving already. No, he's he's escaping. I'm, I'm still in. I'm still Bruce in. is I'm escaping. I am sat with Bruce Lisker and his stunningly beautiful wife, if I may say. Uh-huh. This is just a radio program. Um, Cara. Mm. And I would say this is a pretty big kitchen, isn't it? How big is this kitchen? Oh, gosh. Probably 600 square feet. Yeah, it's madness. And how, how big, this kitchen is big was the room that you lived in for 27 years? Well, you could fit probably 10 of them in here, maybe 15. Did you have your own room? Um, at times, uh, I was what's called single-celled, and at times I was double-celled, mostly double-celled, and or living in a dorm situation. So is it important to you to live in a big house? Because you do. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a lovely luxury. It's sort of going from that, going like all the way to sort of, you know, for more. So yeah, no, I love it. It's pretty cool, really. isn't it's it? It's amazing. It is amazing a fabulous house, though, yeah. unfortunately. So when you were single-celled, were you an amoeba? <laughs> I was a single-celled amoeba for a short time, only for a short time, and then I, I uh, evolved into something quite a bit. A zygote. A zygote, yes, yes. You two are far too smart for your own good. Okay, well, this is big. I mean, I've not met anyone before who spent 27 years in prison is the first thing, and then for something you didn't do, which is a double whammy of, of cruelty almost. If you could just tell us in your own words what happened that fateful day. Well, um, my mother was murdered by somebody that I uh, gave a place on my couch to keep him from being homeless. He came to see our home, our family home, as a source of money, um, ill-gotten or otherwise, and he he murdered my mother. And I, 
um, came, did the deed, left, and I was out on, on a job hunt that day and needed to come over and fix my car, and I found my mom. How old were you? I was 17. And so I know the story, of course, as some people will do, and you arrived at the house. You didn't have your own key. No, when I moved out as a, as a sort of a sign of independence, handed back my key, and okay. I'm on my own. Yeah, I don't need you, Mum and Dad. I don't need you, except for groceries and except for doing my laundry and except for, you know, <laughs> so you I, I need to know that regularly. I have a home base. And yeah. I really, I did sort of, in my own sort of way at that time, I was individuating and sort of trying to... But you know, were a troubled teenager. Oh, I, I started smoking pot at eleven. Um, I, I was I was a I was a good-hearted kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I was always the, the same essentially, you know, person that I am now. But yeah, I'd started smoking pot at eleven and hanging out with some people I shouldn't have. And and yeah, I I tried a number of drugs, tried or or used mainly pot and mm-hmm. alcohol. That was my main thing. But I tried pretty much everything. Okay. Yeah. Would you say you had a problem with drugs? Yeah, and that they, and that I was doing them every day at a point in time. I was doing probably by 14, 15, 16, I was trying to do mm. that every day. But that's that's a pivotal time mm. in, in the person's development, and your brain is, you know, yeah, the jello. it doesn't that, make you a murderer. No, not at all, not at all. But you turned and, up and at the house, and you looked through the door, and you could see your mum's body like Yeah, that. I saw, first I saw her feet, um, what I thought were her feet. I wasn't exactly sure out of, through the yeah. first window. So I ran to the second window, and I definitely saw that she was laying on the floor. I saw her head past the planter, and um, I just I was freaked out. I was high that day. I was panic-stricken, and mm-hmm. I needed to get inside. And that was it was sort of being high and being thrown into this panic. And this it's just a mundane, everyday day until that moment. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, you know, what do you do? And There's no cell phones in those days. No cell phones. So you couldn't call. I but did, you did shout out. I'm in the telephone. Well, once I got inside, once I got inside, so I I saw her feet, I saw her head, and then I went to a cabinet which was just to my left from the second window where we kept a spare front door key in a hide key case, magnetic key case, and I grabbed that and started running back to the front yard, front door, and uh, it was empty. At that point, I knew a way to get in, and that was the way that I, had, you know, gotten in when I used to stay out after curfew, and I didn't want to, you know, incur the wrath. <laughs> And so I would. Uh, so I went to the kitchen window and uh, entered through there. And then you found, that, and she was had been stabbed. She'd been stabbed. She'd been beaten as well, Ugh. and choked. There was uh, like the quarter in her neck as well. And there was and blood everywhere. Everywhere. It was. Which was, is how you got to be covered in blood. At that point, I was screaming. At that point, I was screaming, and I wasn't covered in blood. I had blood on my hands when the police arrived. You know, dropped my knees next to her and was pleading for her to tell mm-hmm. me, you know, who did this, and I'm just freaking out. You, you can't imagine it's it's unimaginable i didn't know what to do but you called you phoned the police no you phoned an ambulance because she was still alive she was still alive and she was breathing but she wasn't conscious as it turns right. out and i didn't know that at first and uh, i was i was pleading with her to say something to me say anything to me just you know did you realize she was breathing you knew it was obvious yeah. she was her body was heaving with oh. each breath she was unconscious but her body was involuntarily gasping for the breath that we need and so this is what i would like to put to the prosecution, my lord, is that you called the police. And if, if you had done it and she was still alive, then you wouldn't have called the ambulance or the police. She yeah, wouldn't. I mean, why would somebody who attacked somebody and didn't want to get caught? Right. Very good point. That's the first thing. Yeah, and then the police arrived yeah. and, oh, look, there's someone who was known to them, yeah. the guy who came. What's his name? Because it's common knowledge. Monster. Yeah, yes. Monster, yeah. And he 
thought, oh, I know this guy. You had blood on you. And he did it. Now, this is a thing. And it happens a lot because I've done some independent research into this. That the police come. I'm not saying all police are terrible. Of course, many of them do a a wonderful job. But they're looking, they want a suspect, and and if they find one that they think think fits the bill, then that's it. I don't know what percentage most, uh, a lot, but um, it happens all too frequently. Mm. This officer was one of his first homicide cases, and he, I believe, was under a great deal of pressure to solve it, as police are. Uh, Particularly the more heinous the crime, Mm. the more, you know, under pressure they are. If they can make a case fit... If they can make it fit, then they sometimes, a lot of them, Monsu certainly seems to be one of them, believe that that case should then fit. And so it's it's not, as we see on TV, shows love to portray this. It's it's terribly dramatic, isn't it? So, you know, well, we, we know who did it, and then, whoa, wait, something comes up, and we have to completely change course. Unfortunately, a lot of times what happens in wrongful conviction cases, it's been shown, is that they lock in and lock out. Yeah. They lock into who they want to you know, he's good for it, she's good for it, and then lock out all other incoming information, often at an early stage. And in, in this case, it was, you know, minutes. And look what happens. You know, it's, so you get carted up. Did, you call, did your dad arrive by this time? He did. I called for help. And you're going a mile a minute. Mm-hmm. You're going 10 miles a minute. You're going, time is, is slowed down to such a degree that you can't even imagine when adrenaline and things are kicking in. It seemed like ages. It seemed, it seemed like an eternity. And I was, I was at my mom, and I was. then I searched the house at one point because it, it dawned on me that whoever did this could still, still be there. here. So I armed myself with, with two knives from our kitchen and searched the house. Nobody was there. Just set the knives on. I ran was outside the to see. They, they were still in her back. Oh, Lord. I'm sorry. And everything was just as, as he had left it. And we know who did it. So dad arrives. So uh, I was running outside looking for the paramedics, running back in, tending to my mother. At one point, the paramedics called back and said, apply direct pressure. Okay. And I mean, as a Boy Scout, I should have known that. But I mean, you don't yeah. know anything. And so I did. I got rags. I was applying direct pressure, uh, towels rather. And um, I ran outside. And at that point, finally, the paramedics screeched to a stop in front of the house, as did a police car. And I was just, you know, get inside, help her, help her, help her. And um, the police went in, did a sweep to ensure that nobody was there or to see if anybody was there. They came back out. Paramedics then went in and started tending to her. And the police began questioning me at the foot of the steps right there in sight of my mom. And so I was just freaking out. It's the visual and just what I found. And I wasn't standing still is as as near as I could tell their excuse for why they did this, but they um, very quickly subdued me. They chokeholded me, took me to the ground, handcuffed me, and uh, put me first against my car and then in a police car, into a police car. And the paramedics were still intending to my mom, finally. And I was screaming at them, get, the, get her to a hospital. I didn't know. Did you realize I, they were thinking you'd done it? At that point, no. I mean, at that point, they're like, what happened? I said, well, I came here and I found her in a window and found and called. And I didn't know. I didn't know. You don't know. And so I was placed in the police car and the paramedics then brought her out on a gurney, put her in the in the ambulance and took her to the hospital. And I'm thinking, oh, thank God. You know, they're going to they're going to save her because this was beyond me and this was beyond treating at the scene. And that was the last time I saw my mom. And then um, 
a few minutes later. And another police officer was stationed outside the car questioning me again. And I'm like, just completely freaked out. I mean, it's, it's, I'm incapable. I'm a wordy person and I'm incapable of describing fully what the situation felt like to me. But at one point my dad arrived. He was at his Hollywood uh, law office. Yeah, he was a lawyer. Unfortunately, not a criminal lawyer. No. What sort of a lawyer was he? Civil. So right. elder law, uh, states, estate planning, that sort of thing. A lawyer who believed in the justice system. Yes. And I that remember that. Yes. Yeah. And that, that really he really against. thought this is all going to be fine. Yeah. Well, he was, you know, as fine as, yeah, he thought that the attorney that was provided to us was an attorney of his, his own ilk, if you will. And that, you know, of when course, you say provided, gonna, so you had a, uh, um, what do you call it? The, the, from the provided. They, they appoint you an attorney. They point, you, and, didn't, you didn't have the resources. Your dad didn't have the resources to get you a good one. While, while saying he was a lawyer would seem to imply that he was, you know, okay. yeah, he, he wasn't, he wasn't that kind of an attorney. He, he worked um, as much as he had to home life was very important. And so he was just, we were comfortable. We were comfortable. But the crucial um, thing is your dad, absolutely believed that you were innocent and that you hadn't done it. Yeah, I mean, that's what he always And so he, he always tried to support you. Yeah. Now, but can I, can we say that, because you were adopted, weren't you, you were brought home to your mum yeah. as your dad brought a baby home that she didn't know was coming as yeah. a, a, a sweet gift, mm. <laughs> if you like. <laughs> so she must have been a bit surprised, but she, she totally loved you. She was. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, for all the difficulties and the sort of, if you take a snapshot of any teenager oh, yeah. and their interaction with their parents in their teens, it's not a pretty picture, but there's always love. There's oh, yeah. love there. Of course there is. But later on, there was you know much made about the arguments and they had to move them out of the house into the apartment. And, and it wasn't so much that as it was in one of our arguments, I think somebody had suggested, gosh, it would be so much easier if he or if you, I don't know if it was said to me or said in my presence, you know, lived on his own. I was like, seize upon that. And yeah. <laughs> I would yeah. love to be out of my own at 16. But you loved your mum and she loved Completely. you. She was a devoted I mean, mother. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and for was all the, our problems. Was the marriage happy? Well, I think that uh, as, as it turns out, um, they probably wouldn't have stayed together had it not been for me. There was just, they loved each other, but it wasn't a passionate in love type of a situation as right. it turns out. And this well, is, not many people are. I mean, you know, reality is reality and you, you know, and, and so some marriages you stay, they stay in love every single day for the rest of their lives. And, and like this one, like, on. like, like ours, <laughs> yeah. like ours. Absolutely. We're on uh, Marriage 3.0 right now. (laughs) You guys have got the love glue. You've got the love glue. You you get taken that and to the police station and you're charged and you're sent to prison. Yeah, and so with the officer that was positioned outside the car, I was when they took my mom to the hospital, I was like, okay, Mm. will you get in and let's go? And I can't do that. We have to stay here, you know. And I'm like, I... I want to be with my mom. This is ridiculous. You know, I want to be, and I was screaming and just crying and, and the futility of my begging them to take me to the hospital and their refusals to do that and, and not knowing how my mom was and just out of my Who mind. told you that she was dead? Uh, it was my dad and it was after. So this is sort of, we're jumping, we're jumping. But um, 
So I was in the back of the car and I was pleading with the officer, Johnson was his name, to take me to the hospital. He can't. He's not authorized to. And, and rightly so. I don't think he was. And then Monsu arrived and he uh, and another detective parked across the street and got out and went in. And I watched, I'm seeing, I'm watching all this and then more and more police are arriving and, and talking to neighbors and, and securing a crime scene, a bloody crime scene. And Monsu then comes out, speaks to the officer, pulls him aside away from out of earshot and speaks to them. And then uh, he comes, Johnson comes back and says, the detective wants to, wants to talk to you. We're going to go to the police station. I said, no, we're going to go, let's, I want to go to the hospital. Well, it's not going to happen. And so I was taken out in handcuffs, walked across to the other car, and then driven to Van Nuys Police Department. The minute I got in the other car, and, and here's the detective, it was Monsu, I said, I want to go to the hospital. And he very quickly um, gave me some really disturbing looks and just, you know, suddenly this situation descends on you and, and what should be happening isn't happening. And they got guns and you, you're in handcuffs and you're distraught and you vacillate between, well, they know what they're doing. You know, you call for help. I was born, like I said, a boy scout and, 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 you know, little wayward boy scout, but I mean, I had been a boy scout and I was raised with, with fairly establishment parents who believed in the system and believed. And so I was taught when, you know, that, pardon me, when the shit hits the fan, you, you call help and you trust them because that's what they're yeah. there for. And so vacillating between, well, they're doing the wrong thing. Well, are they? And okay, we'll go to this. And so not that I agreed, but we went to the police station and I was put in the interrogation room and it's called an interview room, but I call it now in hindsight, obviously an interrogation room because an interrogation is where you have that person as a focus and an interview is just anybody could be. This is an interview. This is, yeah, oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, yes. That's, <laughs> that's, yes. The, that's the pretext. And yeah, I was, plied, and I, <laughs> I was plied with, I was plied with, you know, cigarettes and, and things of that nature and, and talked as willingly as a 17 year old can to detective Monsu. And he listened to me and, and, you know, walked me through everything that he needed to do. And then said everything that you've told me, nothing, none of this makes sense. Nothing, none of this jibes with the evidence that I observed at the scene. I think you're lying. I mean, on top of having found my mom and called for help and not being able to go where I, you know, needed to go and be with my mom and my dad in this just unbelievable time, he put me under arrest and then threw me back into a holding cell in the in a hallway in Van Nuys Police Department, officers and people walking by. And, and I'm just, I'm like begging all of them to, you know, I, I'm not supposed to be in here. I, my mom's at the hospital and they're just looking at me like, you know, you're a piece of shit. So a 27 year long story short, yeah. you, you get charged. You go to, that was a court case. Yeah. Your dad came to court every day. Yeah, every he day. believed you and you were found guilty. And you went to prison. Yeah. For what? What was the sentence? Sixteen years to life. But you spent twenty-seven years. Anytime you have a sentence that ends in to life, you are your freedom. Uh, your eventual freedom is vested with a, uh, a board of prison terms, and these people meet and periodically. It used to be every year. Then it went to every three years, five years. Now they get to IU parole for thirteen years. And so periodically, 
um, you would go before these people and ask them to release you and they would look at your case very critically as it turns out and um, assume that you're guilty and uh, deny you parole. Is it true, because we all know about if to get parole you have to admit guilt and say you're sorry. You know, on paper you don't have to and they state at the beginning of, you know, you should know that you don't have to admit guilt and you're, and that's all BS. It's all BS. And people who have been granted parole and who proclaim their innocence um, all the while are just either non-existent or so, yeah. you know. So you did do what many, many people do. So, yeah. Say, all right, yes, I did it if you'll let me out. Absolutely. I mean, what happened if I, This is the, the analogy. Yeah. They didn't. This is the analogy. If I throw you in a concrete box, not just for a day, but for a week, month, and then years start ticking by. All the while, you know you're innocent. It doesn't matter what you say. If you don't say that you did it, you're never going to get out. Never, ever, ever. And as bad as that tragedy is, it's compounded by the by the possibility of dying alone in prison. And so if you're in that concrete box and I put a button on the wall and I say, don't push that button, got no chance ever getting out of this, this tomb. Or if you push it, you got a chance. You're going to stop caring. Be it year one, year five, year ten, you're going to stop caring what that button represents. How many years in when you said, all right, I did it? It was just about ten. It was right. almost a decade. What so was it like being prison? Was it laugh a minute? Oh, yeah. it's it's. I recommend that <laughs> highly. I just, you know, if you can get in, do. <laughs> and you went to the big boys' prison, <laughs> yeah. St. Quentin. He went, to, I mean, he went to the famous yeah. prison. Yeah. yeah, that was obviously a joke. Um, I know. <laughs> Um, but, um, well, I, I do want to talk to you about jokes. Yeah. I, I haven't intended necessarily to mention it here, but I think it's already apparent mm. that you have humour and, uh, and and you, you don't have any rage in you and you manage to make peace with all this and have forgiven the people, mm. um, which I find extraordinary. And I think it's true to say, Cara, wouldn't you? You, you must have been struck by this when you when you met finally. Um, that he's he's just ha- a happy, balanced person. Or is yeah. he? Is he quietly? Is he tender? No, he's a happy, rigid. balanced yeah. person. Yeah, and you always. Well, I know because I've I've met you the day you. Well, the, I met you at the party yeah, where you met for the first time. Yeah, I was going to say that, but I just. Yeah. I will say that he yeah. has a, a secretive side to him. He has a, a um, protected, a protected yeah. side, which of course he has. Mm. The chat with Claire Forden. But do you remember when you met him? I do. Because we met him on the same day. I know. It was, I well, I, I remember before that, I remember when, um, don't think I'm going to lose sight of what happened over the 27 years. Mm-hmm. I was in, living in Marina Del Rey and you were visiting, we were sat by the pool and we read the article. You'd already read the article in the LA Times by those two journalists who did you a real solid, Bruce? They sure did. By doing their own investigation, and, and it won an award. It was such a oh, great good. Article. It served to. And Obviously. there were over forty articles ultimately. Yes, but yeah. they they were the ones that started. They wrote a tr- an in depth going yeah. my, it, through every single piece of evidence yeah. and showing yeah. that something and a, a gross miscarriage of justice had yeah. occurred. They were so yeah. so Cara read that. Mm-hmm. And you fought for him, didn't you? Because you're a very nice person. Mm-hmm. You are, I know you to be a kind person. I wouldn't have started writing to him. I would have read it like you did and gone, oh, oh poor bloke that he's been through that. Over there. And then moved, mm-hmm. moved on. And then, but you yeah. didn't. You know what? I'm going to reach out. And you just wrote. 
Yeah. Well, I sent twenty-five dollars. What? To the free you could have escaped. You could have bought a file and <laughs> <laughs> to the free Bruce fund. <laughs> yeah. The free Bruce fund. Yeah. I didn't write straight away, but but I I kind of checked with people, and you were probably Mm. one of them. And my mom, my sister. There's this guy in prison. Do you think I should send him? Anyway. Because you you just wanted to to connect with him and just think, and just to be kind, to show him a kindness. It was the injustice of it. Mm. Just. I'm welling up right now. Oh, it was. (laughs) It's it's just such a terrible thing to read. It was. And then then I was stuck there reading the paper because you I don't know whether you'd started writing to him at that time I think you had and, and we're talking just about a card not a crazy oh, yeah, letter saying cards. Yeah. Um, and, and, and sending him the odd bit of money to buy some chocolates and tobacco I didn't want to be I didn't want to send money I didn't want to send photos okay so you yeah. didn't but no. then I'm reading the article yeah. and you're, you've already established when I say a relationship a, a pen pal thing I and mean, I read the article and I see a photo of him and I think you're fine. I went, hello, hello. <laughs> She's going to fall for this bloke. I did. You're not the only person that said that. My I think you'll find out was the first marrying you. Oh, for God's sake, it'd be ridiculous. I'd go all funny. Wow. Wow. No, I just want to, you know, just want to be nice, yes. which I did. And actually, you say, we, we saw one photo where you could see he had lovely big eyes. Mm. Oh, he looked but, kind. He did have a kind. We always joke because there was one photo where he had a pointy head, another where he had a wall eye, and another one he looked... Oh, he I didn't see those. I wouldn't have yeah, said it if um, I'd seen those. I never really saw what he looked like. <laughs> no. Honestly, I didn't. But there were, Until I saw the day he got out of prison, yeah. he phoned me to say I'm on the news. That's the day I saw okay. him. And I thought, uh-oh, I'm in trouble here. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you didn't say he's in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> he's out of trouble. I was in trouble. <laughs> but the, So let's go back <laughs> to you're in prison, in the big boys' prison, mm. and... I, I don't want to dwell on some of the horrors, but, you know, we we, we all think, oh, you get raped when you were young. Did you ever have, were you ever attacked? Right. Either there's sexually a, there's a, there's, or No, violent. I never, I never, violently, yes. So, but, yeah, there were, so, so most of, in fact, all, virtually all of the knowledge of how prisons work and how it is for any given prisoner at any given moment come to us from what movies, mm-hmm. television shows. So two and a half hour movie, hour television show, half hour television show, and what those those filmmakers, these those creatives are trying to do is to convey like the full blush of prison in a way that is that meets with one's expectations. And so they always, in the half hour format, hour format, two and a half hour format, they have to hit the high points, the rapes, the you know getting yeah. beat down, the getting in you know in a cross between the officers and the, the your fellow inmates and getting snitched and all of that, they can, they compress and condense into the short format. And so people are led to believe that that is the lion's share of your experience. When in reality, any prisoner will tell you the lion's share of your experience is sheer boredom. It's mind numbing. It's 99.9% just waiting for something that's anticlimactic when it comes and waiting, waiting, waiting. But friendships do happen and you did make friends. Yeah. You're careful about who you choose as Friends and who you I mean friends. Friends, I don't friends. Yeah, 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 friendly acquaintances. You you find I found people. I can still only speak for myself. I found people, and most do actually, who looked like me, who were like me. So, folks with a modicum of intelligence who were involved in a good trade and trying to stay out of trouble, but didn't look too victimy. 
middle of the road. So if the if the toughest guy over here on the left is over here on the left and the, the wimpiest guy is over mm-hmm. here on the right, I want to be middle of the pack. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of I found people to associate with that were middle of the pack and and a, and a few good friendships, few did uh, arise out of that, people that I've stayed in touch and with. And you still go back and visit some? Don't I you? do. There are a couple yeah. of them. I've been to six prisons. Yeah. <laughs> six. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, talk about coming up. In the I know, yeah. you've taken me everywhere, yeah. sweetheart. Yeah. Well, you know, I try to show you the world. <laughs> the hot spots, high spots. Now, there was an incident over a bucket, wasn't there? Oh, there was a bucket incident, yeah. There was, there was, uh, <laughs> once we had come, and it was a slow process of proving my innocence and, and gather, finally managing to Which, gather the Which, by the, the way, so just to make it clear, you thought, no, I've got to find, I've got to prove it myself. Oh, absolutely. And so I was I was consumed with my case is, is the only way that I could put it. And I, I mentioned that on the 48 Hours piece, um, that I, I just worked on my case nonstop. I had all of the paperwork for my case in my cell. So after I worked on my case quite a bit and got a couple of Got a, a really good private investigator, amazing man, Paul Ingalls. Eventually. Um, eventually. And he had developed a lot of the evidence that proved my, my innocence, and the Times was on, on board. And it was it was apparent to all. And there were newspaper articles that I could show. Well after that, I mean, it looked like not a matter of if anymore, but a matter of when. I was within a couple of years of my release. Um, I was moved from one building to another. And the smallest, most seemingly um, meaningless things have great value in prison, such as a bucket to wash your clothing in instead of having to use the uh, the sinks. And so I had this bucket and I was moving from one building to another and, and I gave my bucket to somebody when I was leaving. I worked in visiting at that time and so I was going to bring a bucket home from, from work and I did. And as I walked into the building, this young officer who could have been more than 23, 24 years old, um, pulled me aside and said, what's in there? And I said, there's nothing. It's just my bucket. And he said, you can't have that. Set it down there. And I was like, as a lifer, you're the most, you're a member of the most stable population in prison. You don't want to break a million rules because then your experience in there is bad. And, and I didn't have an interest in breaking a lot of rules anyway. So I knew the concerns. People could make wine in buckets. And so officers didn't want to let you have buckets. And so I, ex- I tried to explain it, but I'm a lifer. I'm not going to use the bucket to make wine, pruno. I'm just using it to wash my clothes. And he says, I don't care. And I'm like, all right. And then it was count time. So we all get on our beds and are counted. And as I'm sitting on my bed, I'm looking around. This was in a dorm setting where they had modified a day room to have a bunch of beds bolted to the floor. I'm looking around and everybody's, everybody's got a bucket. Except for you. I mean, the biggest idiot in the, in the day room has a bucket. And he does make wine in it. And I'm like, this <laughs> and I was just, I was, I was, I was, injustice again. I was steamed by the injustice. And so after count cleared, we'd have to stay in our beds until count clears. After count cleared, I went and approached the officer and I said, look, I, I understand your concerns. I want you to know who I am. I'm not going to make Pruno. Can I please have my bucket so I could wash my clothes? Everybody's got a bucket. You don't, it's delicate to say everybody's got mm. one because then if they go, oh, well, they shouldn't. And then they take them yeah. and somebody so heard you. Then you're the one who triggered the confiscation of everybody's bucket, and you're a snitch. So you kind of soft played. I soft played that, and and but I said, you know, and he said, I don't care. And I said, and at that point, we had made you know so much gain in proving my innocence, and it was obvious to anybody who'd take a look. And I had the articles with me, and I could show them the articles. 
And yet you sit in there day after day, month after month, year after year. People know you're innocent, but you're still sitting in prison. And just the injustice of it all got to me. And I and and he said, I don't care. And I said, you know what? I don't care either. And I grabbed the bucket <laughs> off the floor and I and I took it over to my bed. And as I'm walking away with it, I'm going, that was so stupid. This is not going to end well. And sure enough, he pressed his, his panic button, setting off oh, the alarms gosh. in the building. And, and at that point... It sounds klaxons on the whole facility that you're on. All inmates are supposed to drop to the ground, and they do. And staff come running to wherever the alarm was sounded because it could be anything. It could be, you know, something silly. It's usually not something silly. Usually it's a fight or an officer being attacked. And so every available staff member responds. And as I heard the things, I just walked back over and I put my hands behind my back and he handcuffed me and, and sergeants and lieutenants are coming who sort of oversee the, the line officers, their supervisors. And they've known me. I've been at this prison for like 17 years. It was Mule Creek by that time. And at Mule Creek, everybody knew Lisker. And it was like, Lisker? Sergeant walked in, it's, it's you? And I'm like, you know. Um, I was thrown in the hole that night and uh, whereupon... Solitary. Solitary confinement. You're in your underwear. There's a bare mattress laying on the floor, and they give you a couple sheets when it's time to go to sleep, and you have like nothing else, nothing else. And I was at that point. I mean, I don't have any sort of bravado to hold up to, you know. And and I was sobbing. I was just sobbing because, like, you know, one step forward, two steps back, yeah. and now it seems fifty steps back. And the because attorney general. Really bad luck. Yeah, oh, the, sure. the attorney well, general. Happens? The people who are the people who are fighting against. What did they do to you, Bruce? Well, I stayed in the hole that one night, and because the acting officer of the day, who's in charge of the entire prison, rotates among staff members, it so happened that the AOD, acting officer of the day, was one of my recent job supervisors. He was, he was a high-up person in the food service department, where I was a clerk before I went to work in business. And he just couldn't believe it, and he was like, I'm I'm gonna release you from the hole, oh. and because it's their call, you know. One and of the good guys. One of the good guys, and uh, he. He can be played by Brad Pitt in the movie. Keep calm and chat on. Had, were you thinking good anything? Friends. Had you seen a photo at that time? Did you know I think she eventually sent me one photograph? I sent you a mumsy photo of me and my cousins on a cruise, and um, it's probably a. Story. But, did, did, but you liked her. Did, were you thinking I like this person? Not romantically, because no. she was she was married, and I wasn't right. uh, looking to. Yeah, I was a homewrecker. I was right. so I didn't see her that way, but I, I did see it as a very there was a connection very for sure. Because you had friends. other friends too. Other yeah. people wrote to you. Yeah, very. Not many. Not as not oh. as many as one would hope. Well, imagine. you did get married though. You were. You I did get married. That was years before. It was 1994. I put it down in the Sacramento Bee. And for a pen pal, yeah. and a woman in Sacramento, which is the nearest big town to my own, where I was housed, um, did write, and we started writing and exchanging cards. And it, she wasn't married; she wasn't attached. And so we, and she, could I visit you? And and within a short period of time, we were engaged, and then we got married. And, and did you have conjugal rights? We then? had we had conjugal visits. Yeah, how do you say it? Conjugal. Yeah, conjugal. Con, 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 yeah. They call it family to, visits. I've yeah. never had to say that word before. <laughs> and and but and it was great. That, they don't do that anymore, though, do they? Uh, they Stop. they took family visits away from lifers. Right. In 1996, and they in the last few years, the lifers have gotten them back because oh. it was realized that it's such a draconian mm. you know thing to 
give them to some and not give them to the very people that you ostensibly, ostensibly believe in rehabilitating, but you're going to deny them all of the things. But you can understand if someone's had a loved one murdered Mm -hmm. in a horrible way, not that there's a good way, yes, of course, that... um, that you, you don't want them shagging it away and being happy and joyful. The the gut reaction for retribution and to have that person live as miserable a life as they possibly can is understandable, and mm. I get it. Um, it's number one. It's it's when you raise yourself up, you know, a thousand mm. feet above the situation and get a big picture view from a societal standpoint. It makes no sense to be retributive. It's segregate people who have committed crimes from the population, from society, for the time necessary for them to do the work on themselves that needs to be done for them to be a safe and mm. productive member of that society again. Then release them yeah. and, and give them every opportunity to utilize the tools that you as the state provide. As the state, I don't believe it's, it's our business to enact retribution against, you know, People and it's it's short-sighted. Uh, be it you know denying them buckets or denying them family visits or killing them with our death penalty, it, that shouldn't be our business. It's not our business at a societal level. Our society at a societal level, the prison situation, the prison system should serve rehabilitative ends exclusively. And if somebody's not willing to rehabilitate, fine, stay there until you rehabilitate. But when somebody wants to. And I, I came away from so many lifers when I was released who were so many years ago ready to be released safely into society again. But because the parole board was at one point at least made up of exclusively of current or former law enforcement or current or former victims' rights board members, all of whom are biased against people who are convicted of felonies um, – People just weren't getting out. People weren't being released. Do you accept that there are some people who shouldn't be let out? Sure. And you could, and I could have picked them out for you. Right. You, you, you develop a very keen eye. And the parole board cannot stand behind the argument that they can't pick these people out. Staff members who work line, you know, line, prison lines and, and, and deal with individuals day to day can tell you, yes, yes, no, mm. You know, and the lion's share are yeses. Well, I know that. What's the name of the young man who we know did it? Mike Ryan killed. Mike Ryan, that's right. Mike Ryan killed my mom, and and I'll get to the lion's share in a second. So the reason that we know, so my dad and I, in the weeks, you know, the the tortured like weeks after his wife of thirty seven years had been murdered and his his only son had been locked up and accused of the crime. Um, we would sit in the visiting room and, well, they were medicating me. So almost immediately they just gave me Mellorill and just... You were probably a suicide risk, were you? That's what, that's part of what they said. Suicide, escape, risk, mm. whatever they, you know, thought or, or claim that they thought. It, it certainly had the effect of shutting me up. Yeah. And, and so I was drugged, but in these visits that we would have at Silmar Juvenile Hall, um, well, backing up a tiny bit, people were, people who knew me, my friends from, you know, the streets and stuff were telling my dad, you know, first, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And close second, Bruce didn't do this. I mean, he's a barefoot hippie kid with a skateboard and long hair. He's not. And you lost so much. And yeah, you know, (laughs) I'm bald by the way, Uh, it doesn't show on radio, but uh, yeah, I shave my head bald and I like it. 
they were also saying, you know, Mike Ryan disappeared the day of the crime. Because we were, you know, he had left town, mm-hmm. um, you know, for good, left L.A., going back to Mississippi for good about, I don't know, six weeks. He'd also been um, found guilty of, of, a, of an assault with a knife. Oh, he was, he had been in, he had been locked up before all of this, before I even met him. He was 16 and and starting, I don't know when, but he was getting locked up for these crimes. He had a long rap sheet, as they call it. And um, he left LA for good six weeks before before the murder. And then about three days before the murder, four days, I forget exactly the dates. I could look, it's in the boxes. I have 40 boxes of case materials upstairs. Um, He shows up back in town. And the day before the murder, he had gone to the house and asked my mom if she had any you know, work he could do for money or any money. And so he was on the streets living, How do you know that? living in carports. Well, my dad, my mom had told my dad right. on March 9th when he came home from work at 4.30 or 5, as was his custom, that Mike had been there that day and, and asked. And she said that she had sent him on his way without anything. She didn't have any work to do. And she didn't have any money to give him. And he left. And then the next day, I discover what I do, and right. he's in the wind. He's gone. He leave, nobody sees him after that. Right. But then, so you don't, then you, you lose your dad, and you weren't allowed to leave prison. Well, you so, go yeah. To the funeral. so, yeah. Um, well, you know, just to wrap up what, because uh, a lot of material to cover, um, yeah. <laughs> just to, to wrap up, well, my dad and I realized. Um, that he had done it, I wrote to the police. I wrote to Detective Monson and I said, please come and interview me, please. We, we have- but how did you realize? And I know that you had a letter from his father, Mike Ryan's father, saying, I have, I have no doubt that my son did this. Yeah, Evanch, and his mom too, uh-huh. um, stating basically that, uh, you know, he's lied to us in the past and we know what it looks like. And we asked him about the Dorkaliska murder, my mother's murder, and he denied it, but we both knew he was lying. Wow. And uh, when Mike Ryan committed suicide in 1996, his dad commented that, and this is hard for me to even say, that the world's a safer place mm. with my son gone. But he was free for all those years. He was free for all those years, during which time he kidnapped a woman getting off of a BART train and public transportation train in San Francisco at knife point what? to try to steal her purse. And when she resisted and tried to run away, he caught her and she was on the ground and he was above her trying to stab her with his knife. And, and thank God she manages to somehow laugh about the incident because she said she had this big down jacket that she held up in the way of the knife and it cut and there were feathers just everywhere. And she, I don't laugh at that, but But was he arrested for that? He was arrested and then pled out to something like attempted theft or some ridiculous yeah. thing. And, and Why did he kill himself? Was there a note? He, well, because he was a miserable human being. And but he, he didn't even note saying, I did it. He, um, and, and beyond that, he was on parole for something else at the time and had uh, been using drugs and had just given um, a dirty urine sample and knew it. And he knew he was going to go back to prison. I see. So he killed himself. Now, so when, when your dad passed away, how many? How old were you when he died? I was 95 and I was 30. And you weren't allowed to go to the funeral? No. I mean, no. that's just And I asked and cool. they sort of, yeah, you know, that's another thing. It's like they try to, they say, they claim 
they rest on this excuse that it's a security risk to let a life prisoner who has no release date attend a funeral because anything can happen. Mm. Compatriots can true. break them out. I guess it's true, but in the case of a, a, a suburban 17-year-old kid who, with no gang affiliations, mm. it's just retributive. It's just they have a blanket policy to say no. Rather than looking and seeing if you have gang affiliations and people might go, and and I was I had voiced willingness and I had the ability to pay for my guard escort, just pay overtime for staff, yeah. prison guards, arm. You offered to do that escort, yeah, and to for the hotel or whatever it would take, and just and be handcuffed. I volunteered for all of that, and they they still refused. So. Now, so when your dad died, he left you some money, didn't he? Yeah, he was my everything. He was my rock, and he was. As as much as joy was my like emotional mm. pillar, he was he was likewise just a pillar. He had he had uh, he was an amazing man. He had been a marine in World War Two, and you know, and anybody that knows Pacific Theater, he was a marine landing on Red Beach Two, the second landing day at Tarawa, which was one of the most harrowing battles of World War Two, mm. Pacific Theater, and with bullets whizzing over his head, he was wading ashore with his arm. And uh, how he managed that, I don't, I don't know, but he did. And and then he suddenly was gone. And, but he did um, leave you some money that you used to try and prove your innocence. He did. How and, much and was it? One hundred eighty-four thousand dollars life insurance policy. And um, were you allowed I, to have that money and access to it? Not directly. I mean, I I, I didn't have it sent to my prison right. no, I, commissary. I, I, Thousands you used of it things to to, to retain is, lawyer. Yeah, lawyer. and so I was um, investing and in, and. In, Multiplying my money, it was pre two thousand, so it was, oh. you know, so it was it was a very easy market. It was like fish in a barrel kind of a market, and so I parlayed that one hundred eighty four to about two hundred and thirty. Oh, really? Thousand from prison, calling A. G. Edwards and arranging trades, and hiring investigators. And Paul Ingalls was one of them. So you mentioned that there were lawyers that I think it was before Mike went yeah. on, but uh, that there were lawyer, series of lawyers that represented me, and the first one. Um, I paid him $7,500 to um, write and file a petition for me in the, in the federal courts. And he wasted two years of my life, produced nothing. And then I fired him. He refused to give any of the money back. So, you know, close to 10 grand was gone. Then I hired a next lawyer. Um, I ultimately wound up paying him about $94,000. $94,000. Yeah. And, and some of that was a loan and he needs to borrow money. And he had a drug problem. And he, yeah, he, I oh. called him at least once and he sounded seriously druggy on the phone. But I mean, he's your only hope when you're in prison, there aren't lawyers like lining up to take your case. Nobody's like, sure. I'll take, you know, it's, it's pulling teeth. The just innocence to get project one. wasn't, the innocence projects weren't up in the right. numbers that they are now. Yeah. There were a couple of them at that time. And yes, they were. And but I there's wrote so to them, many other people, to do. so many people. And I wrote to them and mine's not a DNA case. And they like to, oh, yeah. back then, at least they like to focus on, you know, bang for the buck, you know, a thousand dollar test, whatever a DNA test costs. And you spring somebody, this was not a DNA case. And it was going to take, you know, a lot, a lot, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of investigative work just to really establish, you know, my innocence. And so they, I wrote to them and I never heard back um, until there was news, you know, the LA times article started coming out and then I heard back and, and not before calling. Okay. He had told me, don't get in touch with Paul Ingalls directly. I'll deal with Paul. You deal with me because if, you know, 
these are attorney-client privilege communications, but if you talk to Paul, then all bets are off, which wasn't true. But he told me that. So finally, I had a desperation because he was telling me Paul wasn't providing reports that were due, and I was sending money, and he was telling Paul, well, he hasn't sent the money, as it turns out, because I called Paul directly one day, and we had a very interesting conversation where we learned that he wasn't holding back any reports. I wasn't holding back any money. I said, how much are you owed? And he said some figure. I think it was three grand or whatever the figure was. I immediately said, stay by the phone. I hung up, called A.G. Edwards, the investment place that Mm -hmm. I was with, had them cut a check to him. Check's all good. Called him back, said money's on the way. I don't know why he's been telling you I've been sending money. I've been sending plenty of money. And I can tell you, you know, exact amounts of once I get to my to my bunk and my paperwork. And uh, we established a very close relationship almost at that point, um, based on trust. That um, and he knew by then that I was innocent. He had, and I don't remember the exact date. There was a particular visit when he when he came up, and and it was before then, and said. Uh, you're actually innocent, aren't you? Because, you know, an investigator is going to get a lot of cases where mm-hmm. I'm innocent, and then, yeah. as it turns out, you know. And, uh, and then he spent years, years doggedly going through all the um, evidence, Everything. and he found the crucial piece of evidence which the police had withheld deliberately, do you think, or accidentally? Um, which piece is it? The, foot- the footprint. Okay, so the, the, the footprint, footprint. The bloody footprint. It's sort of... It wasn't your shoe. It's not as clear as that. They did have in their possession all the crime scene photographs um, with photographs of the bloody shoe prints and an impression on, the, on my mother's scalp, which was never interpreted as a footprint until what I'm about to say. And... Um, so everything was there in place. And as it turns out, my trial attorney had obtained a motion and had a motion granted by my trial judge to have the footwear impression tested, analyzed, look at the, see if it matches the shoes. Never did it. So we had, we could have had that done in 1983, 84, 85. Oh, I didn't realize trial. that. Yeah. And, but it was never done. And then the footwear was finally analyzed in the 2000s. And it excluded me as Mm -hmm. having contributed the bloody shoe prints found in the house. And at trial, the prosecutor argued, Bruce Lisker says somebody else did this. Where's any evidence of somebody else being in the house? Any evidence at all? The footprint. It was there, but it was never analyzed. And the detective, Monsu, had testified at all of my hearings that the bloody footprints found in the house quite closely resembled the shoes that I was wearing that day. And so the jury heard that and said, well is a zigzag with sharp up and down. Is that the same as a wave? Mm. Is it similar? Yeah, they go up and down. So that was, that was what my conviction, uh, that it about stood a on. third of it sort of, hung if you'll on. pardon the horrible pun. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But anyway, and, you got and, out yeah. <laughs> eventually. Yeah, I did. Semantics. I did. And it was, it was so interesting because while Monty framed me and put me in, it was him that actually triggered the, the chain of events that, that resulted in my Was any action taken against him? Uh, no. He, when the first of the LA Times articles came out, uh, witnesses in his in the Wilshire uh, Division, LAPD, where he supervised some 63, I believe, officers, uh, said that he was seen in his office reading this, this newspaper article and, and then stormed out of his office through the paper and or his uniform shirt in the trash 
and stormed out the door saying, I don't have to take this shit. I got 30 years on. I'm out of here. We simply must applaud them. The chat podcast with Claire Fordham. Keep calm and chat on. Okay, Tiago, what did you think of that? I think it's haunting. No one thinks that they're going to be in that situation. It's always someone else. Oh, I'm too smart, or I'm too good, or I do things by the book. But anyone can be accused of something horrific and suffer a great injustice. Indeed. It is food for thought. Now then, this was an extraordinary interview to me. I, I, I enjoyed it so much and we got involved in the chatting and it went on for two hours and we've cut it down. I say we, I mean you. That's <laughs> part of your job. Thank you for that. Um, but we, we felt, and this is the first time we've done this, that it should be a two-parter because even though it's gripping and I actually think the second part is even more interesting than the first and that's saying something. Um, I do hope that you'll tune in next week. We'll be posting this next Monday. Um, to hear more from Bruce and Cara, it's, it's, it's extraordinary, getting out of prison. What's it? There's so many aspects to it. I'm just going to pick this one thing about when people are let out of prison after having served a very long time, we're literally just given a few bucks. Thank you very much and good day. There's no support. There's no follow-up. There's no Uber ride home? No, nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Bruce obviously made some friends while he was there. He still goes and visits them. And he is working to improve the criminal justice system. And in part two, he talks about the sort of things we can do. About what life was like for him when he came out. How hard it was. Um, Exonerated. And he did sue the... I think he sued the police and the DA... Um, he sued somebody. I should check up on that. Who cares? No one's going to sue us. Um, but he did get that they got a big chunk of change. But he does say that he never got an apology from anyone. No, and he didn't get enough money. <laughs> Even though he got a few mil. Um, okay, well, tune in next week. Thank you for listening this time. Please tune in next time if you enjoyed this episode. I know we've said it before and we're going to keep saying it until you start obeying us. We need you to say that you liked it, especially on the iTunes website. Um, so please, if you liked it, please share it with your friends on Facebook, on email. But it's it's best for us if you could listen to it on iTunes and leave a comment. If you didn't enjoy it, well, frankly, we don't care. Just don't listen anymore and don't tell anyone. But thank you for listening. Tune in again next week for part two when we hear more from Bruce Lisker and his wife, Cara Noble-Lisker. Keep calm and chat on. Indeed. That is such sound advice, Tiago. We simply must applaud them. The chat podcast with Claire Borden. Keep calm and chat on. The Chat with Claire Fordham is an M-squared production.